นโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมบุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมบุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมบุทธัสสะปุถังธรรมังสังขังนมัสสามิเราวอลคัมทูดีบิกินิ่งออฟดิสยีสวินเทอร์รีทรีทดัมมารีดิ่งส์ดีบุ๊กวิลบีสตาร์ทิ่งวิดดิสยีสอีสวอลยูมทูออฟดีอาจันสมัยโตอันทอลจีนี่คืออันที่ชื่อว่าสีดส์ของความรู้สึกและในปีก่อนๆ2014ผมอ่านต้นบุ๊กและจนถึงบางส่วนของบทที่2 And then in 2019, I again did uh, similar, uh, but uh, we didn't get past chapter 12 of Volume 2 uh, uh, before, and so that's where we will begin. And uh, this uh, first uh, few parts are an, an interview with uh, somebody called Roger Wheeler. This was done in 1981, so 40 years ago. Probably one or two of you weren't even born then. So uh, this is back in the early days of uh, Lumpur Sumato teaching in the West, and uh, Roger Wheeler uh, had been a uh, a uh, gelong, a, a monk in the Tibetan tradition, at um, the uh, uh, Tarpa Chirling Center in uh, in Switzerland. Lumpur Sumato was invited to teach in Switzerland. Um, pretty much uh, every year from in from the late 70s through the um, the early 80s, and on one of those occasions, he was uh, invited to teach at um, Tarpa Chirling, uh, where Geshe Rabton was the uh, the Tibetan uh, Lama who was the teacher there, and Roger Wheeler was was a monk. Um, he might have been a novice or, or a, a monk. I'm not sure, but he was in in uh, in uh, robes there, as I understand it. And then uh, a few years later, uh, uh, he uh, met with uh, Lumpur Sumato again at, uh, at IMS in Barry, Massachusetts, and uh, that's where this interview was carried out. And I thought this was also a good place to start, just quite by um, uh, by chance, coincidentally, because uh, for a number of people here. Have uh, probably ne never met uh, Lumpur Sumato, or only familiar with um, with him and his teachings in a in a uh, more sort of cursory way. Maybe listening to uh, more recent Dhamma talks. But there's a lot in this uh, set of interviews. There's, it's in six parts, so it, it goes on for uh, go, it'll go on for a few days. Uh, a lot of Lumpur Sumato's background, his own sort of spiritual influences, and a, a fairly wide range of um, uh, say considerations with respect to spiritual life. And as we go along, it'll become clear that Roger Wheeler had a, a, um, a few questions um, about uh, the nature of religious form, the, the skillful use of religious form. So uh, along the way, he quotes a few passages from Krishnamurti. And um, it's a, uh, it's a uh, also there's a fair amount in here about Lumpur speaking about skillful use of the Vinaya tradition and religious structures uh, as a, as a skillful means. So this is um, 
chapter 13 of volume 2 of uh, the Ajahn Sumato anthology. Interview with Roger Wheeler. So this is Roger Wheeler speaking first of all as, as a little introduction. I first met Ajahn Sumato at the Center for Higher Tibetan Studies in Switzerland in spring 1979. He had just finished giving a 10-day course in the mountains near Bern and was invited to spend a couple of days at the center by its abbot, Geshe Rabton. One person who attended Bhikkhu Sumato's course liked to be around him because he was, quote, just such a nice guy. It was heartening for me to see a monk who kept the rules of discipline, the Vinaya, strictly, yet maintained a softness and naturalness behind his observance of them. To illustrate uh, Ajahn Sumato's resoluteness about the importance of practice and meditation, while we were walking on the hillside near the center, overlooking the French and Swiss Alps with Lake Geneva below, he asked me whether I had a desire to return to India. I answered that I would go if it was for the purpose of improving my Tibetan. I could then return to the West and act as an interpreter for a Tibetan master or work as a translator of Tibetan texts. His only response to that was, why don't you just get enlightened? That's one of uh, Lumpur's direct, <laughs> direct teachings. Uh, when Ajahn Sumato, uh, Ajahn is the Thai equivalent of the Sanskrit Acharya or Master, when he came to the Insight Meditation Society in May of 1981, he, he conducted an eight-day work retreat. Now to give a little bit of a background to that, so 1981, Lumpur Sumato taught his first 10-day retreat in 1978. Uh, he'd, he'd never taught a retreat before he came to the West, which was in May of 77. And so this was only uh, about three years after, after he first started doing uh, retreat teaching. And, um, and part of the, uh, the, the thinking behind this, this work retreat was because uh, as uh, uh, Lumpur Sumedho had come to the West and was encountering different meditation groups, like, say, uh, IMS Massachusetts, or this was before uh, Gaia House existed, but um, uh, the, there was a place called Oak Tree House uh, in, uh, uh, in Sussex near, um, I think, Amberley. Um, or Arundel um, uh, in uh, the in the um, uh, sort of vague region where Chithurst is now uh, in that sort of Sussex area, and uh, they the kind of meditation uh, centres that existed were very much based on the Mahasi tradition or the Goenka tradition, and there was this very much uh, uh, very very much a strong focus on this is the practice uh, and you know, the retreat form is is the practice. And anything else is not really the practice, and that is a kind of uh, uh, what you have to do with your life in order to be able to go on retreat and, and really practice. So one of the ideas, and I remember I was around at Chithurst when um, this was being talked about, and when uh, when Ajahn Sumato had suggested it, was that he wanted to try and bring into the group consciousness of people at IMS. Um, who are very much focused on the 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 retreat model of uh, you know you could practice together and live together and work together and that is uh, equally as effective and productive uh, of wisdom and spiritual benefit so uh, he agreed to teach a retreat at IMS but it needed to be a work retreat that was the basis on which he agreed uh, to 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 teach there uh, on this particular occasion 
And so that uh, it was trying to, uh, in a sense, create that, uh, uh, that kind of a bridge uh, that is very much a part of our life in, uh, in uh, the Ajahn Chah tradition and how we live here at Amravati, so that we certainly do have retreats, like right now. <laughs> and uh, there's a, a um, uh, say an encouragement towards formal practice, but the, the attitude is, is not that the real practice equals retreat and the, the rest is, is not real practice, but rather uh, the, um, the, the the teaching is given in the spirit that all the different modes of our life, whether we're uh, working and engaging in activities around the monastery, or whether we're sitting quietly in the temple or, or doing walking meditation, uh, the practice continues regardless. So that was the, the, um, the basis behind the, the eight-day work retreat that he was leading. So to continue... As the following interview will show, nothing special is cultivated in the meditation. No particular technique is taught. One's only responsibility is to remain mindful in all activities throughout the day. Quote, live simply, be natural, and watch the mind, which is a, a statement of Lumpur Chars. Live simply, be natural, and watch the mind are the keys to his practice. During the retreat, the students performed various tasks around the center for two hours every afternoon. Some painted, some cleaned the building, others worked in the garden. We chanted prayers every morning and evening, and I was rather surprised to see how the 25 participants, most of whom were new to meditation, so quickly and easily adapted to the bowing and ceremony that the two monks, Sumato, and the young English monk, Sujito, who accompanied him, asked them to perform. So the young English monk... <laughs> Sujito. So this was 40 years ago. So. And, it's, and it's also interesting, I, I feel, in that uh, uh, IMS can accommodate 100, uh, 100 retreatants. So only 25 people had signed up for this. And also it said, most of whom were new to meditation, so that it seems like the, the kind of real meditators didn't sign up for this work retreat because it was, again, I'm, I'm guessing a little bit, but they wouldn't be so interested in something that's not a, not a, a quote-unquote real retreat. That's just my guesswork, projection, but um, that's what I, I read into that, uh, that format. That 25 is quite a small number for a retreat in IMS, uh, in my experience. Ajahn Sumedho inspired the retreatants with his three daily impromptu talks and casually spent his lunch hour and the one-and-a-half-hour tea break willingly answering their questions about Dhamma practice and entertaining them with stories about monastic life in Thailand. What was most encouraging for me was to see that there are monks who have the determination and the motivation to maintain the purity of a tradition. I appreciated Ajahn Sumedha's humour and patience with my persistent questions concerning organised religion. His views on the values of tradition and monastic life enabled me to see this matter from a different perspective. And also just a, 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 a sort of a, a footnote, um, when uh, living at Chithurst in those early days, there was often uh, two or three talks from, from uh, Ajahn Sumedho every day, a morning, a morning reflection, and then sometimes after the mealtime, and then pretty much a Dhamma talk every single evening. That was, that was the regular format for life at Chithurst in those, those early days. So that it was a very rich uh, Dhamma uh, goldmine, really. It was a, a rich seam that was being mined at that time and shared with, with everyone. So then the interviews start. 
Uh, firstly, Roger Wheeler asking, what attracted you to Buddhism? What did you feel it had to offer? And Lumpur responds, the path of liberation. Had you tried other paths or methods as well? And Lumpur responds, at one time I was quite a devout Christian, but I later became disillusioned with Christianity, mainly because I didn't understand the teachings and was not able to find anyone who could help me to comprehend them. There did not seem to be any way to practice Christianity other than just believing or blindly accepting what was said. What impressed me about Buddhism was that it did not ask one to merely believe. It was a way where one was free to doubt. It offered a practical way of finding out the truth through one's own experience, rather than through accepting the teachings of other people. I realized that was the way I had to do it, because it's my nature to doubt and to question, rather than to believe. Therefore, religions that asked one to accept on faith were simply out. I couldn't even begin to get near them. When I discovered Buddhism, it was like a revelation for me, since I saw that one's religious inclinations could be fulfilled in this way. Previously, I'd felt a sense of sorrow because I knew the material world was not satisfactory for me, and yet the religion I'd been brought up in offered no way of practice other than just blind faith. Buddhism was quite a joyous discovery. And then it says, in, uh, as a footnote, Ajahn Sumedho mentioned being inspired by D.T. Suzuki's books and having encountered Buddhism in Japan whilst in the Navy during the Korean War. So then Roger goes on to, say, to ask, Upon completion of your naval service, did you remain in California or did you return to Asia? And then Lumpur responds, after I left the Navy, I went back to the University of Washington to finish my bachelor's degree in Far Eastern Studies. I then went to the University of California at Berkeley for an MA in Asian Studies. When I completed that in 1963, I went into the Peace Corps. And as uh, Lumpur often mentions, uh, uh, and again, some of you might know this, some of you might not, um, he'd started uh, his degree at Washington, the University of Washington was in Chinese, Chinese language. And he, uh, and he did that because um, when he was young, he had a great uh, love of China. He wanted to go and study in China, and he was uh, very keen to join up. They had a, um, a program at St. John's University in, I think, Shanghai in China. And, uh, but then when China became communist in 1949, then the doors closed, and, and he was really... Um, uh, say up, upset or disappointed at that, but the University of Washington in Seattle, where he was where, where he was living, where he grew up, fortunately had an Asian Studies department, and so he learned Chinese language there at the University of Washington. Uh, he also fell in love with uh, a young woman there um, who was Asian, and um, when his parents refused to allow them to get married on the basis of of uh, quote unquote God doesn't want the races to be mixed. Um, he uh, quit the, the, took a leave of absence from the university and joined the navy. Went to sea to um, to get away from everything. So that was why there was a break in his uh, in his degree. And he often mentions uh, that was uh, that was the the background to that. So he did four years in the U.S. Navy as a medic on the supply ships. I think it was actually after the Korean War rather than during it. Uh, he was on the uh, ships going back and forth across the Pacific. Um, and going from the west coast of America to, to Japan. 
And um, and so then after four years uh, of that, then he could pick up his degree and he finished that degree in Chinese studies. So uh, he's pretty much lost his Chinese language now, but uh, uh, one of the reasons when, uh, he went, joined the, when he joined the Peace Corps was he went to teach in uh, Borneo is because there was quite a large Chinese population in Borneo. And so he taught at a, a, Chinese, a school for Chinese children in Borneo when, uh, when he was in the Peace Corps. So then Roger goes on to ask, what attracted you to Thailand more than to Japan, for example, where Suzuki's teachings originated? And Longpore responds, well, I was in that part of the world. Also, I remembered the cold winters of Japan. Since Thailand had such a nice sunny climate, I felt I might as well see what it had to offer because I dreaded having to live through those cold winters. And he often said he, he knew that the, in Zen monasteries they didn't heat them in the wintertime and there was uh, uh, icy cold. And so um, he thought that Thailand uh, and Southeast Asia had a lot more uh, of an uh, attractive appeal. There was um, one time at the Buddhist Society Summer School uh, when uh, uh, they, were, uh, they would have a, a Zen group, a Tibetan group and a Theravada group. And the people would, the different teachers would, would take it in turns to, to teach in the evening. And the, the lead Zen teacher was Myokyoni, and she had a, a, a large crowd of very, very dedicated disciples. And she was a very sort of strict Rinzai Zen, Zen master. And uh, they knew also that, uh, that uh, Ajahn Sumedho had started out reading D.T. Suzuki and was inspired by Zen Buddhism. And um, uh, uh, the... Um, uh, the, uh, when he he gave a, a talk at the uh, at the evening at this uh, Buddhist Society summer school, it was about 120 people gathered there, and so somebody asked the question, "Venerable, Venerable Sumato, why was it that you chose Theravada Buddhism rather than Zen Buddhism, since that was your uh, where your your faith arose in the in the Dharma?" And and you could feel the room sort of tighten, like, "Oh, this is going to be nasty." There was some. There was going to be a kind of Theravada Mahayana face-off. But he said exactly the same thing. He said, well, I've been to Japan uh, in the wintertime, and I knew how freezing cold it got. And I knew they didn't heat those endos. And because I was afraid of the cold, I went to sunny Thailand instead. <laughs> so it really changed the atmosphere in the rooms. <laughs> One of those extremely skillful uh, gestures of Lumpur. And... Uh, and it was absolutely true as well. He wasn't. He wasn't fibbing. It was. It was the truth. But it also helped us. Oh, there was not. There was so much a doctrinal difference as a a, a fear of the cold. In time, he actually, having lived here in England, he became uh, uh, enamoured of the English winters. Um, but uh, uh, at that time, he was drawn to to sunny Thailand. So he goes on to ask, "Did you immediately go to Ajahn Chah's monastery?" Lumpur responds, no, uh, I went first to Bangkok where I practiced meditation as a layman. During the mornings I taught English at Thammasat University and in the afternoons I went off to practice meditation. I later decided to become a monk but I didn't want to live in Bangkok because I didn't find it very suitable for me. While I was on vacation in Laos I met a Canadian monk who recommended that I get ordained in a Thai town across the Mekong River. So I followed his advice and went forth as a Samanera at a temple in Nongkai. So the, at that part of the Mekong River, Vientiane, which is the capital of Laos, is on one side of the river, and Nongkai is on the, the, uh, the Thai side. So Vientiane is on the east side, and um, Nongkai is on the, the, the west side, sort of across from each other. So that the, this Canadian monk in Vientiane uh, recommended uh, a, uh, a monastery in, uh, in Nongkai, and then Lumpur goes on. 
So I followed his advice and went forth as a, as a summonera at a temple in Nongkai. That year I mainly practiced on my own, without a teacher. The following year I met a disciple of Ajahn Chah, a Thai monk who spoke English. He took me to meet Ajahn Chah. And Roger says, and you remained at Ajahn Chah's monastery for 10 years? Yes. So again, uh, some of you will be familiar with the story of that, but uh, some not. Um, so in northeast Thailand at that time, it was extremely rare to meet anybody who spoke English. This was 1966, 67. It would have been uh, maybe early 67. And, um, and let alone uh, a, a, a Thai monk who spoke English. But this particular monk... Prat Somai had been in the Thai Navy during the Korean War and had uh, picked up some English. So it was an extremely strange circumstance. Very, very fortunate that not only was he a monk from, uh, from Wat Bapong, but he was a, a monk who was probably the only monk from Wat Bapong who spoke any English, <laughs> happened to come to that monastery. And he was back in Nongkai because he was attending a family funeral. And so then he was the one that took Lumpur Sumato uh, to, to Ajahn Chah. So Lumpur always had a, a great uh, debt of gratitude, a sense of gratitude for Prat Somai, who was being the one who made that uh, connection for him. Next uh, question from Roger. You mentioned that it was the doubting aspect of Buddhism that attracted you to it. One was able to doubt. It very often happens that people are attracted to the Tibetan tradition because of the personality or wisdom of the teacher. Does the teacher have such a significant role in the Theravada tradition? And Poor responds, no, they try to de-emphasize that, but people are often attracted to teachers, which is very natural. However, the discipline itself is arranged so that one does not adore a teacher. One keeps within the discipline by respectful attitudes and compassionate actions towards any teacher or anyone. I was not really looking for a teacher. I didn't have the feeling that I needed a particular kind of teacher, but I had confidence in the Buddha's teaching. When I met Ajahn Chah, my confidence in him grew when I realized what a wise man he was. At first I liked him, but I didn't feel any great devotion. But I stayed there, and I really don't know why, because there were many things I didn't like about the place but I just seemed to stay there for 10 years. Roger asks, how would Ajahn Chah instruct his disciples? Ajahn Chah set up a monastery which provided the opportunity for people to be ordained and practice Buddhist meditation. So, what he mainly offers is a place, a conducive environment. The teaching itself is just the traditional Buddhist teaching of the Four Noble Truths. He adheres to the, to the Vinaya discipline, Part of the agreement to live there is that the monks adapt their behavior to the traditional discipline. I felt that was very much what I needed. It was an opportunity to live under a convention of that kind. My background was very permissive and freewheeling, and I realized that was a great weakness in my nature. I resented authority and didn't know how to conform to discipline in any way. So I was quite glad to have the opportunity to do that. It was a good challenge for me, and I knew that that was what I needed to do. Much conceit still existed in me, wanting to live on my own terms. Ajahn Chah was very strict, and we had to live on the terms established by the monastery. I learned to do that there. Ajahn Chah does not stress method. He stresses just being aware during the day and night, being mindful and watching the impermanence of conditions as one experiences life. During the first year, while I was in Bangkok, I meditated alone. 
since I understood the meditation technique, but when I went to Wapapong, Ajahn Chah just encouraged me to keep doing what I had learned in Bangkok. He didn't demand that I adapt my behavior to any particular form or technique other than the Vinaya discipline of the monks. So uh, going back to that point about um, the uh, the kind of uh, um, central position or the um, uh, the devotion towards the teacher, um, I think uh, Yelumpo puts it very very well here. But it was also uh, in some monasteries the 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 teacher does uh, say allow or even encourage a greater sense of devotion, but. Uh, uh, Ajahn Chah in particular um, tended to, to push that away and kept um, and people were naturally very drawn to him very very uh, inspired and, and glad to be around him but his uh, his constant theme was don't look at me look at yourself don't uh, don't, uh, don't obsess with me it's not me that's going to make the difference it's you <laughs> You know, and so that, uh, and if someone was particularly sort of gushy or attached, then they would be <laughs> pushed away more vigorously or sent off to a, a, a difficult branch monastery, or get made fun of in in public or something to 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 um, cool their cool their ardor a little bit. Um, but it was uh, it was very much with uh, with the intent uh, to not to make it into a personality cult. I interestingly, I was uh, doing a, an interview with Lumpur Kemadamo for the uh, history book they're putting together for Wat Panana Chart, and uh, similarly he he spoke in a very very similar way how um, that it wasn't the personality or, or the the um, the kind of star quality of Ajahn Chah that appealed to him. In fact, he found that he said that he found that a bit off-putting. His background in theatre had made him a bit wary of that sort of anybody being held up as a star. But uh, uh, what really drew him was the uh, the way of practice, and that's uh, uh, that was what I, I found as well. That is. And I feel that's one of the great skills of Lumpur Chah as a teacher and why it has been something that's been so successful and has carried, uh, been uh, able to carry its form into many, many different uh, countries and cultures. And that, uh, and Ajahn Chah would, would spell that out over and over again. It's the monastery that's the teacher, not, you know, not me. <laughs> the, the monastery environment is what teaches us if we are ready to learn. And so that... Um, yes, the the person at the, at the center, it's their job to help sustain that environment, but really it's the monastery environment that is the real teacher, and then it's up to each individual to use that environment to the best of their ability. And I feel that's such a powerful and helpful principle. Also, those of you who've been listening closely will notice, uh, will, will have noticed that uh, Lumpur Sumato is talking in the present tense, um, yeah, what he off, what he mainly offers present tense. Ajahn Chah does not stress method; he stresses just being aware during the day and night. Ajahn Chah was still actively teaching when the, this interview happened, 1981. He was, was before his health collapsed, so that was uh, he was still actively uh, teaching. And uh, this was in May of 81, and, and uh, Ajahn Sumedho had been back in January, February of, of 81 to see Ajahn Chah in Thailand for the, for the first time since the, since the Chithurst had been established in uh, in England. And um, so that he had just really come fresh from, from Lumpur Chah's uh, company. And uh, so that it was uh, so prior to the whole collapse of Lumpur's health and, and him no longer being able to, to teach in an active way. So there's also there's a, poign a poignancy in, in that, uh, I find, for myself.
So uh, there's a couple of microphones up here. So please, if anyone, anyone has any questions you'd like to ask, that's the end of the first part of the interview. So please come and get a microphone and uh, ask a question if you have one. Don't be shy. <laughs> please. Give Gaspar some exercise. No? No doubts? <laughs> uh, it's actually the first time I hear the, um, the story that Long Paul was, I guess, heartbroken from a Chinese girl that he had to leave to the Navy. I never she heard was this. Japanese. Oh, Japanese. So, is there any more of that? <laughs> <laughs> she was Japanese, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, it was, um, it, was a re it was really painful for him. That uh, they, they'd fallen in love, they were quite, quite young, I think he was about 19. And uh, uh, in, in those days in the 1950s, you know, it was, that would have been 1953, 52, 53. Um, you know, getting married at 19 or 20 was not unusual. It's a bit more rare nowadays in the West. But, yeah, and uh, his parents put their foot down and said, no, we, we, we don't approve. And, and in those days, again, it was the 1950s, that was 70 years ago. You, you uh, if you were a sort of uh, a good child, you didn't go against the wishes of your parents, and so things have changed a lot in the West, uh, in particular, uh, in subsequent decades. But uh, yeah, they put their foot down, and um, so he was really heartbroken. And so then, I think just a, a, as a way of um, breaking out of the situation. And just, I don't think he could imagine carrying on at the university. You can, you can ask him when he comes. <laughs> I'm sure you will. <laughs> I'm not sure. I suspect you will. Um, but uh, I think just to, to get out, because I don't think he could just imagine carrying on going to his classes with his beloved there and not being able to, uh, to be together. And... Um, so that uh, he joined the Navy, you know, that sort of runaway to sea, that was the kind of thing that you do, is sort of like going off to join the French Foreign Legion, you just, I'll, just, uh, I'll, go, I'll go to join the Navy, go to sea and leave it all behind. So he volunteered, he wasn't drafted into the Navy, uh, I think he had a, uh, they still had conscription I think in those days in the US, but if you were a university student, you could wait until you finished your degree, but he, he's, he stepped out of the degree and, and signed up for the Navy, um, just to get away from, from the situation. And so um, I think, uh, again, you, you can ask him yourself, but I think he actually did meet up with his former beloved many, many years later, that, uh, that uh, they uh, uh, exchanged letters, and she found out he was a monk, and uh, they had some, some correspondence. I mean, as a middle-aged woman, he has already been a monk for 20 or 30 years, but uh, they, they didn't lose touch altogether. But uh, it was, um, you know, one of those things that uh, it's a, uh, a a painful cause that has a very beneficial result. You know, that uh, you know, sometimes it's the most difficult and challenging aspects of our life that bring about the most 
a sort of a beneficial changes. We'd never ask for a heartbreak or a, you know, like a, a, um, a crisis in our in our life, like a, a, a serious illness or a, a death in the family or some such. But often it's those those tragedies that push us out of our uh, the the ordinary confines of uh, of our lives. Also, he talks about his, uh, and I'm not sure if he addresses it later on in the interview. But um, yeah, he was a very devout Christian. He actually, um, uh, you know, had conversations with the bishop. Uh, he was an Episcopalian. That's the Church of England in in the U.S. Uh, he had conversations with the bishop about the possibilities of of training to be a, a, a an Episcopalian priest. Uh, he was thinking of that. So he was he was a very serious Christian, but he had a lot of doubts, <laughs> and uh, and uh, and so that. Um, I think that uh, that was um, in those sort of late teen years when he was a, a, a young student at the University of Washington. Then he still had that that aspiration. Maybe after he'd finished his language degree, he'd go into the ministry. But then, with the the breakup with the, this uh, his um, Japanese uh, girlfriend and the uh, uh, and then the. And the, the mounting doubts, you know, why did why did God make me fall in love with this person if he if he doesn't allow me to marry her? Those kind of things. Again, you can make a note of these issues and ask him yourself. Oh, by the way, uh, the, uh, his travel plans have changed, and he's now due to come on the twentieth. So they've cancelled the various events in in the northeast. So they've brought their ticket forward. So just about two weeks two weeks from now, he should be here. Any other questions on that first part? If you can wait for the microphone. Yeah. Uh, just on, on, on a similar line, is it true that he did get married to somebody later as a... As uh, yes, he, uh, when he was at Berkeley. He was married for about two years, as he put it, one really good year and one really bad year. Uh, yeah, when he was a, a graduate student at UC Berkeley, and uh, he was studying um, Asian history, I think he was doing a, uh, his master's thesis was on Gandhi. And so he was doing Asian, Asian history. Uh, yeah, he, he got married to uh, an American woman, um, and they were um, they lived in San Francisco. He was studying in Berkeley, but they had a, an apartment in San Francisco. He showed me where it was. It's right near Dolores Park, if you if you know San Francisco. Because that was where I lived. That was a really bad time. <laughs> I think the Dolores Park uh, stint that was the, that was a difficult time. But uh, yeah, so they they divorced after after two years. She is a poet, and again, he's uh, after uh, after a number of years as a monk. Then um, he got back in touch with her, and uh, uh, I think before he he took his upasampada, he wrote to her with a sort of asking for forgiveness letter. And that his preceptor said, "Is if you've got any unfinished business or any anyone that you've you feel that you've had um, difficulties with, it's good to." To ask for, for for forgiveness, and I, I, I you can, again you wait till Lumpur's here. He, he can confirm the stories, but 
uh, I think what happened was that he wrote to her and didn't hear anything back for about 10 or 12 years. And then when he was already back, uh, I think when he was back in England, um, then a, a letter reached him from her saying, you know, this has taken me a while, but <laughs> yeah, I forgive you, please forgive me too, that kind of thing. So, uh, uh, so that there was some um, uh, kind of rapprochement, but, uh, uh, but uh, again, I think that the painfulness of that experience of, of marriage was another of the things that made him you know, very interested in meditation and following that up when he joined the Peace Corps. He was in the very first group of, of trainees in the Peace Corps. The Peace Corps was launched by uh, John F. Kennedy, and then he was in training in Hawaii um, for that first tranche of, of Peace Corps volunteers when Kennedy was assassinated. So the, he heard about that when he was in the Peace Corps training, 63. Uh, <clears throat> but, um, yeah, so then the, uh, so he'd left the marriage by that time, that was over, uh, and he was, but he was very interested in meditation. So he had um, encountered Buddhism through reading D.T. Suzuki when he was in the Navy, and then had followed that up uh, just by reading books. And then um, he was particularly inspired by the Charles Luke uh, books, Chan and, uh, and Zen Training. It's a series of three uh, books published by Charles Luke. And uh, one of them had a, a set of Dhamma teachings by Master Xu Yun from a retreat that he led in Shanghai in 1954, uh, uh, when he was, I think, 114 years old. And he led that retreat, and uh, and in that retreat, there's it's very uh, Charles Luke uh, 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 is quite thorough in the in the account and quite accurate. So he spells out quite in some detail the method of investigating the question "Who am I?" as a meditation method. So that was what Lumpur Sumedho used as his main meditation practice when he was in the Peace Corps, and then also a lot of the time when he was in Nankai and when he first went to Wat Bapong. So he was using that. The instruction from from those Charles Luke books from the from the uh, the great master Shu Yun. Okay, so I'll continue with uh, part two. So then uh, Roger uh, starts off. I'd like to read you something from Krishnamurti concerning tradition. He says, "To carry the past over to the present." To translate the movement of the present in terms of the past destroys the living beauty of the present. There is nothing sacred about tradition, however ancient or modern. The brain carries the memories of yesterday, which is tradition, and is frightened to let go because it cannot face something new. Tradition becomes our security, and when the mind is secure, it's in decay. One must take the journey unburdened, sweetly, without any effort, never stopping at any shrine, at any monument, for, or for any hero, social or religious, alone with beauty and love. That's Krishnamurti in The Only Revolution. That's the end of the quote there. Now, and then Roger carries on. Now, your and Sujito's presence here has been an obvious display of the carrying on of a tradition that has existed for over 2,500 years. Concerning this quotation, I wonder if one could get too caught up in the form, missing the intended purpose. Or, another way of stating it, how does one avoid getting caught up in form? Lumpur responds, well, it's like driving a car. 
one could dismiss the convention of a car and say, I'm not going to depend on that because it's from the past. So I'll just walk on my own to New York City, which is a long walk from Barry, Massachusetts. <laughs> or, or I'll invent my own car because I don't want to copy someone else and take something that is from the past and bring it into the present. I could do that and maybe I would succeed. I don't know. The point is not so much in the vehicle that's used, but in getting to New York City. Whether one goes slowly or quickly, one should take what is available, whatever vehicle one finds around. If there isn't any, invent one or just walk. One must do the best one can. But if there is, already, if there is one already around, why not learn to use it, especially if it's still operable? Tradition is like that. It's not clinging. One can also cling to the idea that one does not need tradition, which is just another opinion or view. Uh, those of you who are familiar with Krishnamurti and uh, the sort of dynamics of his teaching, uh, he did end up in quite a sort of heroic position, very much sort of uh, with uh, the people in awe, and with good reason. He's an incredibly wise person. But even though he said, he would say, like, don't put me up on a pedestal, don't. Don't uh, don't worship me. People would say, "Oh, we, we love the way you <laughs> we we love the way that you tell us not to worship you." It's like uh, rather like in the life of Brian, you know, the uh, that uh, the um, uh, he's uh, when uh, Brian is telling them to to get lost and go away that uh, they uh, they uh, worship him for the very fact that he's telling them to get lost. Oh, he must be a really a great enlightened master because he's telling us to get lost and go away. So it was, a, it was an ongoing dynamic with Krishnamurti. He really tried his, his best to not use form and not, uh, say, develop traditions, but uh, that is, um, uh, say, how we operate as human beings. And so um, what Lumpur is pointing to is that it's the, the skillful use of form and that, uh, that example of a vehicle is one that I've used over and over again from hearing him speaking in this way, but also... Uh, it's certainly a, a f the form of getting into a car. It's limiting. Yes, you have to sit in a box and not move, uh, and and so it's limiting. You're strapped in, and and you can't uh, wander around. Your 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 movement in the vehicle is limited. Yes, but <laughs> by by being strapped into the vehicle, then it enables you to uh, to travel much greater distances with much greater ease and, and much more convenience so in exactly the same way the the uh, the skillful use of the form it's a vehicle uh, and that and over the years lomposomato will be quite quite uh, uh, say vigorous in his uh, discouragement of people uh, getting uh, getting stuck on on the the form of monastic life and and uh, or in, or in uh, in the forms of, of buddhism uh, as a, a lay practitioner, and uh, very could be very very forthright. And uh, I remember in the early days of Amravati, him saying before the temple was built, and when we were having teachings either in the um, in the sala or the retreat center shrine room that era, he'd say the the last thing I would want is to turn you into a bunch of bloody Buddhists, like it was some sort of horrible infection, some kind of ghastly uh, accident that would happen to you. At the, if you became a Buddhist, oof, perish the thought. <laughs> because, uh, and then often when, when people were, were uh, requesting to, to enter into the, the monastic life as a nun or as a monk, as an anagarika, anagarika, 
Yeah, he would, uh, over and over again, he would emphasize, you're not taking on the robes as an identity. It's a vehicle, it's a skillful means. If you think you're putting on the robes in order to be a monk or be a nun, you've got completely the wrong idea. It's not an identity, it's a skillful means. And that, uh, that if, I, if I thought you wanted to become a monk in order to be a monk, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give you a pasampada. <laughs> I wouldn't uh, offer ordination. You know, it's those kind of things he would he would say, which for some people would be like, oh, but I really want to be a monk. <laughs> and, he'd ha and he'd walk you through it. They'd say, well, it's not a matter of not using the robes or not being respectful and sincere in the practice of the, the Vinaya discipline, but it's how you relate to the form, to the, the robes, uh, the, the Vinaya discipline, the, the, the structures of our daily life. That's the point of it. If you think it is what you are, as uh, in a sense of being, then you, you've missed the point. It's not an identity. It's a skillful means, an upaya. So then Lumpur goes on to say, quotations like that are tremendously inspiring. But they're not always very practical, because one forms another opinion that traditions are wrong or harmful. The problem, you see, I'm sure Krishnamurti must realize this, does not lie in the tradition, but in the clinging. So that you can, you can cling to the idea, that you can cling to the opinion that traditions are wrong or harmful. So then you're still clinging. <laughs> you're clinging to a kind of anti-tradition rather than a pro-tradition. The problem does not lie in the tradition, but in the clinging. This body is a conventional form that came from the past. The language that we use, the world we live in, and the societies we're a part of are all conventional forms that were born in the past. So one could say that one does not want anything to do with them, in which case one should stop talking completely. Krishnamurti should stop having books published. <laughs> As, yeah, in the, if you follow the logic, yeah, and I think you know, Lumpur's uh, so his his uh, analysis of that and, and his expression of it is incredibly clear and acute. It's like, yeah, language comes from the past. Yeah, it's formed over centuries, millennia, to be this. And so Krishnamurti is, in the act of using speech, he's using something from the past. Ta-da! <laughs> um, and then Roger responds, uh, he says to his listeners, Krishnamurti, I don't know why you buy these books. <laughs> so Krishnamurti, he was, uh, you know, I think he was indeed very, very aware of the irony of having to use those forms in order to, to have, an, have an effect on others. But uh, Lumpur Sumedho's point is very, very uh, apposite, very appropriate. So Lumpur goes on to say, as we live in a conventional world, Sorry, uh, we live in a conventional world. It's not a matter of depending on conventions, but of learning how to use them skillfully. We can use language for gossip, lying, and becoming obsessed speakers. We can become perfectionists, fuss budgets with language. The important thing is to understand. The important thing to understand is that language is communication. When I communicate something to you, I try to speak as directly and clearly as possible. It's a skill. But if my tongue were cut out, I would just learn to live without speaking. That's all. That would not be any great sorrow, but a bit of an, in, bit of an inconvenience for some things. It might be convenient for many other things. Religious traditions are just conventions that can be used or not, according to time and place. If one knows how to use them, 
through, uh, through the tradition, one is much better off than someone who does not know or who thinks that they are all just a waste of time. One can go to a Christian church, a Theravada monastery or a synagogue and respect, get a feeling for the convention one finds there without feeling that it's bad or wrong. It's not up to us to decide about that. They are all based on doing good, refraining from doing evil. But if one clings to them, one is bound to them. If one regards religion as just a convention, one can learn how to use it properly. It's the raft that takes one across. And for those of you who are not familiar with that particular sutta teaching, this is one of the, the uh, uh, examples that the, the Buddha gives and is a sort of classical uh, simile that uh, when he talks about the Dhamma, he says the Dhamma is a raft uh, that you that you use you uh, if you're on the one shore of the river which is dangerous and um, there's kind of wild animals or violent people and it's you know there's there's peril and and difficulty then if you gather some sticks and vines and you you um, bind them together then you can you can make a raft and then through your own effort you can paddle across to the to the other shore uh, of the uh, the river where it's safe and secure there's no danger from wild animals or or harmful people and then the, the buddha said uh, so once you've got to the 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 other shore the safe shore is it appropriate is it sensible to to pick up the raft put it on your shoulder and carry it around saying saying oh this raft has been so helpful to me this is the way i got across from the the dangerous shore to the safe shore therefore i should take it with me wherever i go is it wise to do that or rather is it more sensible to recognize well this raft helped me to get across but now uh, i don't need it anymore so i can just leave it here on the bank and go uh, go on my own way and he says the dhamma is exactly that way so rather one should regard the dhamma teaching as a means to carry one across and that once you, you're, uh, you've got to the safe shore, to the other shore, then you don't have to carry it around. It doesn't have to be something that is is a, uh, a clung to uh, as a, a burden. And so that is, uh, I feel, an extraordinarily sort of clear and helpful analogy. It doesn't mean that you reject the Dhamma teachings or that you, uh, you don't use them, but that there is the attitude of, uh, of say, non-clinging, non-grasping, non-attachment. And Roger goes on to say, You mentioned that traditions can be used according to the time and place. I noticed that you and Sujito go on arms round in Barry in the morning, which is Barry is a local town near IMS. On the one hand, I find this quite admirable. On the other hand, I wonder what kind of effect this has on a society that isn't Buddhist. To the average householder, a person wearing orange or red robes could be anything from a Hare Krishna devotee to whatever. Is following the tradition completely, at this time and in this place, doing more harm than good? Could it be offensive to these people? Would it have been offensive for me to go and listen to Krishnamurti at Sanan wearing my robes, which, in that context, I chose not to do? So uh, Sanan is, I think, uh, the Krishnamurti center in Switzerland. And... Um, uh, so in, in, in the that uh, Tibetan tradition, uh, they, the monastics uh, don't have uh, any, um, uh, say, limitations about changing out of their robes. If they want, if they feel it's appropriate, they can change into lay clothes and go about uh, uh, in lay clothes um, to to work or to travel and, and such like. So that it seems like he went to go and listen to Krishnamurti at his place in Sanan and it changed into lay clothes in order to, to go along to that. 
There's also a Krishnamurti center Brockwood Park near Chithurst. So when when he was giving teachings there, frequently the Sangha members would go from Chithurst to uh, to Brockwood Park to listen to Krishnamurti, and sometimes he would uh, uh, acknowledge this robed <laughs> robed person in the group, and uh, sometimes not. I didn't go along myself, but uh, some people did. So then, uh, this last piece from Longpo, then his response is. Well, the intention is good. The time is now, and the place is here. Some people will be upset. Some people will find it very nice. In England, it upsets some people, but sometimes people need to be upset. They need to be shaken up a bit, because people are very complacent in these countries. Also, going on arms round attracts good people who seem to like it. Since our intention isn't to shock or to harm, how my appearance affects others is their problem. I'm modestly covered and not out to lure them into any kind of relationship or harm them in any way. On the contrary, going on arms round gives them the opportunity to offer dana, if they are so inclined. If they're so inclined, in England, admittedly, most people don't understand it. Yet it seems to me that making the arms round is one of the religious conventions that is worth maintaining, because people in countries like this have forgotten how to give. It's like putting juice back into the religious body once again. It's getting monks moving within the society. When the Buddha was a prince, before he was enlightened, he left the palace and saw four messengers, quote-unquote, who changed his life. The first one was an old man, the second one was a sick person, the third was a corpse, and the fourth was a monk meditating under a tree. I look on arms round as a message. I don't view it as a duty I have to perform, but just as a part of my life, the way I, I live my life. If people object and find it very wrong, if it causes people all kinds of problems, then I'll not do it. That has not happened yet. However, we can also assume too much. We can assume that people will not understand and therefore not give them a chance. When I went to England, many people thought that I should not go on arms round in the village near our monastery. They thought it was stupid. Some English people, as well as Buddhists, felt that we should adapt to the English customs. However, I decided to take things as they come. Rather than deciding whether or not I should adapt it to English customs, I simply followed the tradition and played it by ear. I felt it would take its own form accordingly. If one trims the tradition down before even planting the seed, one often severs or shrinks its whole spirit. The entire tradition is based on charity, kindness, goodness, morality. And I'm, and I'm not doing anything wrong. I may be doing things that people don't understand, and Roger responds, In my own mind, and I imagine in the minds of others as well, the arms round might seem to be a type of clinging to form to tradition. And Lumpur responds, Then one isn't being mindful. <laughs> it would be just clinging to a method, but that is still better than what most people cling to, isn't it? I'm not sure, says Roger. Is it possible to place a value judgment on clinging? However, uh, how does one keep the mind awake day and night? When performing certain rituals, chanting on arms round, how can one avoid the repetitive mechanical routine of our daily existence? So maybe I'll pause there. Uh, so that was uh, one of the things that was very interesting about coming to England was uh, when uh, Lumpur Chao first decided that he would leave uh, Ajahn Sumedho and uh, Ajahn Kemadamo, Ajahn Anando, Ajahn Viridamo in London when he went back to Thailand in July of 77. Uh, he said, you can adapt things as you need to here, um, 
you can uh, uh, you can wear the robe over both shoulders if the weather gets cold. Uh, you can inside the monastery. Uh, you can change the chanting if you need to. But one thing that you must do is you have to go out. You have to go out on arms round every single day. And they they were surprised a how he was quite adaptable in some respects. But he really laid down the law in terms of going on arms round. And they were a bit curious because they thought, well, there's only like one or two people who are really devoted uh, monastery supporters who are sort of out there waiting for us, and other people don't know what we're doing. And Lumpur Chah said, you're, you're, it's your duty to fly the Buddha's flag. This is the, the banner of the Arahants, is the robe, and that your role is to be a fourth heavenly messenger. So whether or not people put food in your bowl is beside the point. Yeah, also, it's, uh, you know, to, to stay locked up in your house and be afraid of interacting with society, then you're never going to do any good here. And even if nobody offers you anything, you're out uh, in the world and people are seeing you. And as it turned out, that was how they got given the forest at Chithurst, because they were on an arms round where they uh, were walking through Hampstead Heath and some uh, person who was jogging past stopped and engaged them in conversation and ended up giving them the Chithurst forest. Uh, on the arms round, not on the arms round. <laughs> took a, a friendship had to develop first, but uh, it was that was the first encounter was on their bindabad. So it was uh, very very worthwhile. So any any questions or comments? The last section. Okay, let's just. I'll leave it there, and I'll follow up on that. Um, and we'll get on to the subject of rituals. Actually, I think tomorrow is the day before the Wanpra. Is that correct? So uh, I'll be meeting with the Anagarics tomorrow. So the next uh, the next reading will be um, the day after Wanpra. So in, uh, not to, not tomorrow or the day after, but the, the day after that will continue. <laughs>